Welcome to the Disciples Made Here series. Our goal during these four weeks is for you to identify your one, invite them to do life with you, and see how God works from there. Here's an episode of our podcast to help you along that process. All right. Hi, I'm Michael, one of the youth pastors around here. And uh, this is the moment that we've been building toward, okay? 29 day challenge, some of you guys did it, some of you didn't, that's okay, because one way or another, you will be sent today, okay? So you are here, and today we're going to send you to be everyday missionaries, like we do every week, but today a little bit different than what we normally do. But we're gonna be focusing on the last step in the Disciples Diamond that we've been using, right? Where we talk about how we're gonna identify people, we're gonna invite them into relationship. We imitate Christ together. And then the last step is innovate. How many of you, you hear the word innovate and it makes you a little nervous? Anybody? Okay. We have all of the early adopters in this service. I'm pumped. I'm ready. But as we get started, there's a couple things uh, that maybe we don't always want innovation to happen in. Um, I'm a new parent. Okay. I've got a nine month old. And a few days ago, it was Wednesday. I was getting ready to do my whole, you know, youth group thing. And I get a text from my wife of our little baby Addie, nine months old, and she had figured out how to grab the poles of her crib and pull herself up. I know, some of you are clapping. I didn't, I freaked out, okay? And so so she texts me this picture and she's like, uh, I think we have a problem. Addie had figured out how to bite the top of the crib and it's only a few more inches until the leg comes up and she's on the ground, okay? So, I rush home, tell the team, I'm like, hey, I got to go drop the crib real quick. It's too high. Like the baby's going to fall out and die. Okay. So I zip home and <clears throat> she's an amazing mom. She's like, Addie's sleeping on her. And I break out the drill and I'm trying to figure that thing out. And like, just, just saying unsavory words, maybe. Um, and why do they make cribs so complicated? Okay. You need like six units at Sac State to figure it out. Gosh, and so I get in there and I'm like un- unscrewing all the things and-, and dropping tools everywhere. And finally, I get the crib lowered and rush back to youth group and get, get things done. We circled the wagons again after youth group was over. And I realized like I hadn't even really processed what just happened, right? Like most of the milestones we've been ready for. She's gonna roll over. She's gonna smile. She's gonna say dada first. I was, we were ready. We were prepared for all those things. But this one, we weren't quite ready for her to be able to pull herself up on things yet. And now there's all kinds of mayhem happening in the home. She can pull herself up on like the glass of the back door, like the spider woman. (sighs) We weren't ready for it, right? And and there's something about when that kind of newness happens that at least for me so far, uh, it creates a lot of anxiety, okay? I start to freak out. I'm like, you are growing faster than I am able to keep up with the change. It stresses me out. I'm like, you're going to be grown before I know it. And I know you guys told me this, okay? You all did. You're like, soak it in, buddy. Just, just soak it in. And so my wife and I, we would joke, we're like, soaking it. Just soaking it, like, just because, I don't know. That's how we process these kinds of pains. And so you guys say these kinds of things, but then as we're watching, as we're watching her grow, there's this, like, there's this intense fear of like, she's growing faster than I can keep up with. Like she's gonna be out of the house before I know it. And she's only nine months in. Apparently this gets worse, okay? And so, so as, a, as a new parent, I'm figuring some of this stuff out. But, but what we know is that if she's not able to kind of like 
innovate and grow and do new things and pull herself up on her crib and hit her head on things and figure out how to take those next steps developmentally, we're going to stunt her, right? Like the goal for me as a parent is to help her become a, a functioning adult in society who loves Jesus. Like if I can get those two things, it's great. But like that goal comes against my need for control, right? It's for that when you want to control things, you want to, you want to have things the way that you want it. And, and one, one, uh, one pastor said it this way. He said, you can have control or you can have growth, but you can't have both. You can't have both at the same time. And so when we talk about innovation, there's this necessary component of letting go, right? Of, of letting things move on and evolve apart from the control that we have. You know, when Jesus sent us on this mission that we have, he didn't give us a checklist, he didn't have an ABC one, two, three of how to do it. He said, go make disciples. That's a very open-ended instruction, right? That's a very kind of hands-off almost. Now we know the Holy Spirit is with us and empowers us for mission and has helped us to do that. But he said, you guys figure it out. And for the last 2,000 years of the church, we've been innovating. We've been going into new places and sharing the gospel and, and learning how to express the gospel in our lives and in different, different cultures for, for the last 2,000 years. This innovation thing has been a necessary component of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. At this point, if you guys have been tracking with our 29-day challenge, you all have a pray watch list. You all have somebody who is your one, someone you've identified that you're praying for, that you're asking for gospel opportunities with. And so now, how do we innovate how do we go? And how do we encourage them to do the same? You know, with innovation, there's, there's kind of like two ways that most people look at it. All right, how many of you are the, you love the new, you love the fresh? You like the, you're like, I want the iPhone 15 Pro 39C12, and you bought it before it even came out? Only two of you in this service too. Very cool, because in the first service, there were three. So my bet was there were more innovators in here than not, okay? How many of you, you're not the fresh and new kind of person, you're the old and steady, right? Amen, all right, we got a lot of y'all in here. Okay, so, so you're like, you're the person like me who has realized that I'm just, I'm at a place in my life where I just want the Western burger. You know what I mean? Like, like I've been in those little, you know, burger joints you go in, you're like, oh, this one has like an egg on it and some bourbon aioli and like some sort of mushroom thing growing out of it and sprouts. Like, it's going to be great. I am always disappointed. You know what never lets me down? Bacon, barbecue sauce, and those crunchy onion things. Okay. Amen. Amen. And I'm sorry. It's 1045. And I just committed the ultimate cardinal sin of a preacher of telling you guys about food, but it's true. Okay. And and there's something about this kind of place in life where I know if I go in and order that, I'm just not going to be disappointed, okay? So some of you are the old and steady crowd. You're like, I just, I just want what I know. I want, I want the norm. Whatever kind of side of the fence you find yourself on, the two of you who like the fresh and new, and the rest of us who don't, no matter what, we are called to innovate, to go and, and do the thing God has called us to do. You know, innovation is sometimes going to be born out of frustration. If you've ever had a kind of a hands-off boss who says, you go figure it out, you know that sometimes that's frustrating. You're like, but there's, there's not a manual? Like, you have to figure the thing out. And so it brings along with it some frustration. But out of that frustration often comes innovation. You find a new way of doing it, a new way that works. You're able to move forward. Sometimes innovation comes out of a place of transformation. 
You wanna absolutely change something from top to bottom, and so you have to find a new way of doing it. If you keep doing the same results, you're gonna get the same output. You have to change the input to get a different output. So you innovate and come up with something new. You see, this is what Christ has called us to as followers of Jesus. You are going to make disciples in a way that I never will. I'm gonna make disciples in a way that you might never do. Like my early way of discipling and getting into relationship with people to pour into them was music. It was just common ground that we could talk about and build relationship on. Some of you guys, the only instrument you know how to play was the CD player. And you're very confused now about streaming and that's okay. But you're gonna have something that you do that I don't do. I don't know how to put a basketball through the circle thing with the net. Like, it's, it's gonna be different for all of us, right? But we're sent to innovate and do it the way God has called us. And the beautiful thing, the, the genius thing that Jesus did is he didn't give us the express roadmap of here's A, B, C, one, two, three, how to do it. He said, love God, love people, go do that everywhere. And so we've been having to figure that out for the last 2,000 years. So what I want to do is zoom in on that moment, that moment when Jesus says, go and be my witnesses into into all the world. Here it is, Acts chapter 1. Here's what it says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It says, one of the first instructions he gives them is actually to wait. He says, you need to wait because you're going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. None of us have the ability to change someone's heart. Maybe you've tried. I'm sure many of us have. I know I have tried. None of us have the ability to change someone's heart. None of us have the ability to change someone's mind. The only one who can do that kind of internal work is the Holy Spirit. Jesus knows that. He says, look, you need to wait because you can't do this on your own. You're not gonna be able to fulfill this mission. You're gonna have to go with the power of the Holy Spirit in you because it's gonna be the Holy Spirit who leads to the kind of life transformation that is actually necessary for someone to be part of the kingdom of God. So he says, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. But then he says this, you will be my witnesses. Now, I've heard there's a big sports ball game coming up. Yeah? Yeah? There's probably one today. I saw people wearing a lot of the red color. And, um, but I've been a very much outsider of this, what we'll call the sports phenomenon in culture. And as I've observed what um, the typical American does with sports is we get excited about things that, that we can't do and that we didn't do. So that we'll sit there and we'll watch a TV and someone you know, puts a ball through a hoop, which that's not how you do that, right? But, but, or they kick it through the yellow things, and, and we go nuts. We're like, what? And they like flip over the wings, and they're like, dang it, I flipped over my wings, and like, they go crazy, and all you're doing is witnessing what's happening. Sorry to burst your bubble. I know you played in high school. I know you, th- <laughs> I know you thought you had a shot. It's okay. There's, there's something about it where it's like, you, you know because you've tried to put the ball through the hoop or you've tried to like push the ball down the field and you're like, that actually takes a lot of work. And so you just lose your mind in celebration at this tiny object going through another object. I get it. I like, I like things too. Um, <laughs> but what's happening in that moment is we are just witnesses to the sports ball game, okay? The same is true when it comes to Jesus. It's interesting he chose, you will be my witnesses. 
Not, not that you're going to go do it yourself. He says, you're going to witness to me. You're going to witness to Jesus. So, so what we bring, what we have to offer at the table is no better than us watching the game. What we're bringing is a witness to the work of Jesus. So when I'm having a conversation with somebody and they're down or they're going through something hard, I can speak from what I've witnessed from Jesus. So I can say, I've been there. When I was 17, I went through a really hard period of depression and apathy. I didn't want to get up some days. There were times where, where I thought I was not going to graduate high school. I just wasn't turning in papers. I wasn't doing anything. I had no purpose or set goal in my life at that point. I can speak from that place. And not just from that place of pain or that place of hurt. Then I can speak from, hey, but, but Jesus brought something to my life that no self-help book was ever going to do that no learning skills class because I didn't turn in my papers was ever going to do. Like, Jesus brought a type of change in my life where I now had a purpose. I had a calling. He says, look, you have a reason that you're here. You have a reason to get up every day. You have a reason to go and to interact with people and to tell them about me every single day. And so what that started to do was peel away these layers of apathy and depression that were in my life as I started to find purpose in just playing music with kids on the youth band. But what was happening is I was discovering the work of Jesus in my life. I was finding purpose. Look, I didn't do that myself. That's Jesus doing work in my life. And so when I'm with people, I'm just a witness to that work. I'm saying, look, this is what Jesus did in my life, okay? I don't know if you've seen him move in yours, but I know that he has a plan. I know he's doing something. And so in discipleship, we're really just witnessing to what Jesus does, which should be a relief to most of us. You don't have to have it figured out. You just have to have witnessed what Jesus has done in your life. And he says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You know, we as a church, we actually have our outreach budget separated this way, okay? Some of you guys are here for the annual meeting later. You'll see it. There's Jerusalem budget line item, Judea and Samaria budget line item, and ends of the earth budget line item, okay? One of our goals as a church is one day we want to give 50% to outreach, okay? It's insane. But we're shooting to say, hey, how do we make the biggest impact possible for the kingdom of God by reaching other people who don't know Jesus yet? And so what we do is we adopt this strategy that Jesus gave his disciples. He said, okay, you're going to start in Jerusalem. That was their city where they were. Then he said, you're going to go to Judea and Samaria. That was the surrounding area. Then he said, you're going to go to the ends of the earth. We've said this a couple times in this series, but where was the ends of the earth? Yeah, I heard a murmur. It's okay. El Dorado Hills. It, for them, it was, like, it was like Rome is as far away as we could ever think of. Like, what else is there out there? The ends of the earth. And so what we do as believers and followers of Jesus is we're just following the same thing. Saying, okay, well, how do we impact El Dorado Hills? And so we have things like Base Camp that reaches hundreds of kids every year. We have things like Polar Bear Putt-Putt that was engaging with all kinds of new families who had never really set, church on a, or set foot on a church campus. If I could learn how to order my words, that'd be helpful. We are able to reach people with the different things that we offer here, whether it's our groups, our life-on-life -life discipleship that we do, whether it's our Sunday mornings. We pour money into that. We also pour it into Judea and Samaria. That's what our church planning is. So as we're engaging with other people who want to start other communities like this one, what we're doing is we're following just what Jesus set out to do. So as we're interacting with Gabe Garcia in Oakland, what we're doing is just following after Jesus. 
And what happens is the gospel moves forward. I've had the privilege of going down there and sitting in a service, and I loved hearing some of the things that would come up. I'm like, oh, whoa, he said joy in Jesus. That's like us. And we stole that from John Piper, so, and he stole that from the Bible. So it's like so cool, right? And so, but it's awesome to watch that kind of like sharing happen. And then we're learning things from them and the way they do things. And so what happens when we're having these kinds of like approaches to mission work is we get to see the gospel move forward. The other one's the ends of the earth. We have all kinds of partners around the world. We have partners in India and Africa. We were exploring partnerships in Haiti. And we engage with people who are starting new faith communities in Uganda, right? The proxy coffee thing is really a way for us to take your addiction and connect it with the mission of God, okay? So you love coffee, right? At least I do, I'm wearing the t-shirt and, and we have people we're connected with in Uganda and so as you buy a bag, we're able to help resource that mission. And so we are just innovating, right? We're saying, okay, God, you've called us to be your witnesses, to claim all that we know is you, wherever we are in this world, so let's do it. And what's beautiful about that is, is the, the field is wide. The field is open. There's innumerable ways that God wants to work through each of you that some of us haven't even thought of yet as we're called to innovate and to step into discipleship. So this is what we do. And what's interesting about the word witnesses is it comes from, like the word, the word in the original language is actually like where we get the word martyr from. Okay, so when he first said, he said, you're gonna go be my witnesses. I don't think they made the connotation of witness and martyrdom yet. He said, you're gonna go and witness to me. What happened was, is as people actually went and just witnessed to Jesus, it led to their death. Many of the people he talked to, most of them, in the moment he's giving these instructions, ultimately die for their faith. And so this word witness actually took on the connotation of dying for your faith. That's where martyrdom comes from, is this one idea here. And so this would be something that really defined the beginning of the church. He said, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And here's what happened. After this moment, they go, they wait, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they share the gospel. That day, over 3,000 people come to faith. They're like, we believe. We want to follow this thing. And what happens is this Christian movement, these followers of Christ that they called the way, started to expand in Jerusalem. Thousands of people were coming to Christ. But something happened where they got a little stuck. Okay, Jesus said, go into Judea, Samaria too, and to go into the very ends of the earth. They kind of stopped at Jerusalem for a minute. They slowed down. And so what God did is he allowed for this change to happen where there was persecution starting. And what happened was, is the people who were in Jerusalem got sent all over. There was a guy named Saul who was a part of that. He was one of the first persecutors of the early church. He was standing there at the first martyrdom. This man named Stephen who is just telling people about the, how the presence of God isn't confined to any one location, it's accessible everywhere. Stephen is killed for his faith because of what he said. This man who was standing there then begins this sweeping movement of persecution against the church. He's traveling one day to go and persecute more Christians, and Jesus like lasers him, okay? If you read it, like the, this, this light comes down and he's knocked off his whatever he was riding, and he's blinded in that moment. And what he says is, Paul, or Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He's like, well, if I'm hearing a loud voice from heaven, I should probably listen, right? And so he, he kind of stops for me. He's like, what do I do? Clear, clearly, you are God, and clearly, I'm going against what you want from me. And so what he does is he ends up turning to Jesus. 
He ends up following Jesus. And this man named Ananias gives him grace and teaches him how to follow Jesus. But here's the thing. Everybody knew that this guy named Saul was responsible for the deaths of many Christians. So no one wanted to be his friend. Seems practical, right? Like, so he would come and they're like, hey, get out of here. We don't, want, we don't want anything to do with you. But there was one person who saw something in Saul. His name was Barnabas. Okay, Barnabas means son of encouragement. He looked at Paul and he said, hey, I see something in you. I see what God wants to do in your life. I see where you were and I see where you are and I see what God could continue to do. And so what happens is Barnabas grabs Saul and they start going on these missionary journeys to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to take the gospel to the Judea and the Samaria. And as they go, they're, const- they're like constantly referred to as Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. Eventually, that flips, and they're referred to as Paul and Barnabas. He changes his name, had an identity crisis. It's okay. We all go through it. Okay, so he goes and starts sharing the gospel, and now it's Paul and Barnabas. And then as that continues on, it's Paul and Silas, and then it's Paul and Timothy, and then you've got Paul and this guy named Aristarchus and Luke, and he starts building all these different disciples who go and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And there's a moment in Paul's life where he gets to the final destination. He had been seeking and serving after Jesus, and he found himself in chains in a place called Rome. In this moment, Paul thinks it's done. He thinks it's over. He's convinced that he's going to die. And so what Paul does is he writes a letter to one of his beloved disciples. He says that he views him as a son in his life. His name was Timothy. And Paul says these final words to send Timothy to go and be a disciple maker. Today, we send you. We are sending you to go and be disciple makers. We do that every weekend. But today, we are very intentionally sending you into the places and spaces that God has sent you to say, disciples are made here, wherever you are. So what I want to do just for a few moments is take a look at Paul's sending of Timothy, because I think there's a few things that we can learn if we're going to be sent to go and be disciple makers. So last words he has to say to this guy, he doesn't know if he's going to die before Timothy shows up. Here's what he says. You can turn there if you want. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet, from them all, the Lord rescued me. He's saying, look, you came with me. You saw everything. You were there. You got to see me be persecuted. You got to see me be steadfast. You got to see me try to follow Jesus in every moment of my life. Now he says this in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's a warning he gives them. He says, you will be persecuted. Now, today, persecution, at least for the church in America, doesn't look anything like that. Like, you aren't walking out of your house thinking that you're going to be taken or thrown in jail or killed for your faith. For them, that was a very real reality. That's what persecution meant. They're like, this is a very real thing that could befall us. And so he wants him to know, look, there will be problems. If you want to commit to this thing, if you're going to go for the long haul, you will be persecuted. You will experience opposition, and you need to be ready. Then he says in verse 14, but as for you, 
continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through, uh, through faith in Christ Jesus. Then he says this, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. He says, you have known God's truth from the very start. You've known what's true about God and what's not true about God because you knew the scriptures, you were aware of them. And now, don't stray from that. Here's what he says, you need to know what God has said. You need to know what God has said because there's gonna come a time in your life when this opposition, these people who are going from bad to worse, who are deceiving and being deceived, they're going to try to deceive you. They're gonna tell you that something's true that is blatantly false. So you need to be ready. You need to be so aware of what God has said that you're not gonna be taken astray from it. How many of you know that in today's culture, there are many things that are being said as good, as true, that are blatantly not what scripture has said is good and true? That's, it's blatantly obvious. There's things that the Bible has said it, very clear on that the culture wants to say, no, it's okay. Hey, it's fine. Did he really say that? I mean, Jesus didn't seem to mention it, but, but that other guy did. But, you know, and, and they, try to, they try to have this false teaching that comes out that goes against God's word. Paul knows that's going to happen. So he says, look, you need to know this thing on the inside and out. I, we, we've been reading the Jesus Storybook Bible. And you guys... Um, Parents, you know, grandparents out there? Yeah, okay, you kids out there, you should read it, it'll blow your mind. Um, I've been loving it, loving it, okay? So I've been sitting there with Addie, and we'll read through some of the stories. And the other day, we got to Leah, and I was just, like, crying. Okay, I'm like, God loves Leah so much. I'm just, like, losing it. And, 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 and what's funny is, I'd read the story of Leah so many times, and just the way that they had kind of worded it, they're like, like, look, God saw Leah, and God chose Leah, and God wanted his plan of redemption to come through Leah. And I'm just like, how cool is this? And this story of Leah that had the light cast on it from this Jesus storybook Bible is rattling along inside of me. You see, what that does is, is when I'm engaging with other people, this word of God that's in my heart is something that will just come out naturally. It's going to come up. And so for us, what we're called to do is to know what God has said in such a way where it just kind of starts to flow out. But maybe you've never read through Genesis and you've never had the opportunity to look at the story of Leah or to see Christ through the story of Leah. That's not going to come up in a conversation then. And it's because we aren't aware enough of what the scriptures have said. And so Paul's encouragement to Timothy is he says, look, you need to make sure you know these things. Make sure you've soaked in these things. That These things can rattle around in your soul and come out when you're engaging with other people. He says, know the word. Know what God has said. And when you do that, you'll find that everything's profitable. Even the weird stuff in Genesis. You're gonna go there and be like, what the heck? Anybody on the like, Bible reading plan right now? You're doing that thing and you're, you got in there and you're like, okay, what? They, excuse me, huh? And like, you're, you're going through it. You're like, what is this about? And so if you haven't like, read through some of that stuff, then, then some of these narratives in Genesis aren't gonna benefit you, right? Because you, as we go through, we see God's plan for redemption and how he chose some absolute losers, us included, okay? But like, you look at like Father Abraham who had many sons, like we're singing that song and that is not a good story, okay? Like it's not a good thing he had many sons. He was literally, he was like a 40-year-old man who was living with his parents. No offense out there, but 40-year-old man living with his parents had nothing going for him and God picks him to start the nation that his savior would come for the broken and sinfulness of the world. How, how crazy is that? That he would pick this absolute, like he's not the round one draft pick at all. 
if you're going to go start a nation, I'm not starting with Abraham. But God picks Abraham, and Abraham fails a lot. It just shows more and more how much we needed Jesus. But if we're not soaking in the scripture, if, we're not, if we don't know it, that stuff doesn't come out and doesn't come alive to us. So we soak in the scripture. The next one he says is this. He says, I charge you, in verse one of chapter four, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, this is instruction to a future pastor, right? It's instruction to this guy, Timothy, who is being a pastor and serving and preaching the word. But there's something we can learn from what he's instructed Timothy to do. He says, you need to be ready to preach the word. You know, like preaching really just means to like proclaim or to speak or to talk about the teachings of Jesus. The best sermons that are gonna come out of Vintage Grace, Drew says this all the time, they're not gonna come from the stage. They're going to come from you guys. They're gonna come from you sitting across the table from somebody when they ask them, when they ask you about your life, when they ask you about your joy, when they ask you about the values that you hold. And when you tell them why, and you tell them it's Jesus and that you're just a witness to Jesus and you didn't do it yourself, that's gonna be more powerful than anything we will ever say from a platform. When he says go and preach the word, he's saying you need to know this thing, you need to be ready to share it. Do you, do, have you reflected on what God's done in your life? I think that was one of the bonus challenges in the book. If you missed it, go back to that page, try it. Like, what has God done? What can you witness to that Jesus has done in your life? Because he says to be ready with complete patience. Anybody else uncomfortable with that word? I am. Like, this is with patience, because here's the reality. You might get the moment where you finally get to share what God has done in your life, and something might not even happen. In fact, most times it seems like things aren't happening. But what we don't know is what God is doing behind the scenes in every single one of those conversations. It's this compounding effect of people engaging with the gospel in your life, in the lives of others, as the pray watch lists are overlapping. They see Jesus through what Jesus is doing in your life. It might not happen in that moment, but we have to be patient with people and be patient with ourselves and recognize that God has been patient with us. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to truths and wander off into myths. Verse five, he says, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. He says, as for you, stick to it. There's gonna be people who are just gonna say what people want to hear. There's gonna be people who are gonna say what people like. You need to stick to the truth. Don't let go, fulfill your ministry. And here's what he says. This is perhaps one of the most like, profound things that Paul says. And I pray that one day I can say something like this about my life. I pray that one day all of us could say this about our lives, but we won't know until we're at the end, right? Here's what he says. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time for my departure has come. He says, I am dying. This is it. He says, but I have fought the good fight. I finished the race and I kept the faith. Fight the good fight. Finish the race. Keep the faith. Simply put, don't give up. That's what he says. He says, I've fought the fight. And what he's encouraging Timothy to do is to just not give up. Because here's the reality. If you go out there and you try to innovate and share the gospel with people and live life on life and encourage them to do the same, you're gonna get frustrated 
There's gonna be times that you wanna absolutely just give up. Don't give up. If we stick with it, if we keep going, what we see at the end of our lives, we can say, hey, I did fight the good fight. I did run the race. And what he says is that henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to also all who have loved his appearing. He says, anybody who commits to this thing and sees it through, at the end, there is a reward. The reward is who we've been a witness to. That's Jesus. Jesus is what it's all about. Jesus is what this whole disciple making thing is about. It's what all this like sending thing is about. It's about Jesus. And Jesus is the reward of fighting the good fight, of sticking with it. So you are a witness to Jesus. We are witnesses to Jesus. And we're called to be witnesses to Jesus everywhere that we go, wherever you're sent. But here's what we have to recognize. We, we can't let discipleship stop with us. We can't let it stop with us. We would do well to heed the sending of Paul to his disciple Timothy when he says this, there will be problems. There's gonna be times you wanna give up. There's gonna be things that are gonna come against. You're gonna get busy. It's gonna be too much work. They're gonna say no. They don't wanna hang out and talk about Jesus. Like there, there's gonna be opposition. Don't give up. Don't give up. And then he says this, know what God has said. So if we know what God has said, if it's in our hearts, we don't have to worry about preparing a presentation of four spiritual laws. Like, sorry, I like the four spiritual laws. They're beneficial. But what I'm saying is, is that we don't have to like prepare or like come up with something. We just say, okay, like this is what I've been witness to in my life. We know God's word. We're able to share that. And then the third one is this. We just tell others what God has said. So all right, here's what God has said. Here's what he's instructed us to do. Here's how it's absolutely changed my life. If we know those things, if we can share those things, that impact is gonna be wide and far. And the final thought is this, is just don't give up. Just don't give up. Because making disciples is hard. And somebody didn't give up on you, which is probably why you're here. So what we're called to do as followers of Jesus is to be his witnesses, right? So we go and we share the gospel with people and faithfulness to this mission, faithfulness just starts with one. Hopefully you all have one identified by now. If you haven't already, think of one right now. Who's somebody that you can say, I'm gonna be more intentional with for the sake of the gospel this year? Just one person. Faithfulness starts with one. But our job isn't done until your one's one has one. Does that make sense? And, that's where, and even then it's not done um, because we've gotta keep going and fight the fight, right? Okay, so what we do is we pour our lives into others for the sake of them doing it to others and then that to continue on. If we don't have this like long-term mindset of creating disciples who make disciples who make disciples because we've been discipled, discipleship does kind of stop with us. And so we are called to be a part of this mission of God, to go into the world, to preach the good news, to share and be witnesses to what Jesus has done in our lives. It's, it's really that simple. We're just calling people to love him and to love others. And when we do that, we see the kingdom movement happening. And so what we're gonna do next is we're just gonna take a moment and just worship and thank Jesus. Let's just thank him and say, you know what? We do worship you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the beautiful name that you have that we stand under that has rescued us. And so if you would, would you stand with us? And let's just worship him for who he is and thank him for what he's done in our life. Thank you so much for joining us for Disciples Made Here. We hope that you've been encouraged to become a disciple that makes disciples. Join us next week for more practical ways to apply Jesus' example in your daily life.